Are you guys ready? How are we doing tonight? Everybody doing good? We are doing good. Well, we uh, might as well go ahead and get it going here. We are on the, the last leg of Isaiah. We've been talking about uh, the glorious kingdom of God. and We weren't here last week, so it seems like it's been a long time since we were last here. I guess it's two weeks ago. But uh, we were uh, in Isaiah 63. Not so sure if we finished that part. We might have, but uh, at any rate, we might kind of start off with that because it kind of introduces chapter 64 and even 65. Because as we've been dealing with a glorious kingdom, we kind of shift gears just for a little bit before we close with this uh, glorious ending. And it's about revival and it's about prayer. And, of course, those two go together. And Isaiah is really being revealed that um, there is a judgment on the people. At that time, There was and within a hundred years, Babylon was going to come, right? And so uh, what he is going to do is um, kind of uh, entreat God to pour out His Spirit to people who need to be revived. They need to repent. And so um, he desires that God's Spirit would come in and change hearts and it would change them. There's a desperately bad future that is ahead. And, uh, of course, I, I think this is, again, it proves that Isaiah um, is a prophetic book because he uh, has shown throughout the whole book that there would be prophecies in a very short time uh, that would be fulfilled and the Assyria thing and some of the judgment on some of the other nations that were at that time, uh, those wars and then Babylon. So the, the, definitely Babylon. I mean, that, that's a historical fact. You can look in history books and find out that uh, yeah, Israel was uh, carried away by the Babylonians back uh, to, to their land if they weren't slaughtered uh, as the uh, temple was slaughtered. Uh, so Isaiah pictures God but it's like he's up in heaven and they're down here on earth and he's calling upon God and he's saying don't you, you know can you do anything you know what what are you doing you know please do something and he knows how powerful he is he knows what he did at uh, Mount Sinai and how he uh, um, took care of the people in the wilderness and all the great mighty powerful things that he did so Isaiah is doing some revival praying. He's using some of those as examples what God has done in the past. And we know that Israel had wandered away from God and uh, they didn't fear God anymore. And, and uh, so God has to do His discipline on them. And uh, He certainly did. He uh, The power of sin had uh, totally entangled them and they were hardened. God even hardened them more as we look in uh, this text here tonight. And they need to see how utterly dependent they are upon God. And without trusting in Him totally, there's just no hope. And so Isaiah just is pleading for the mercy of God here in 63, 64, 65. He's praying for mercy and help. So we'll be starting there in uh, in verse 15 of uh, chapter 63. There's the guys. How's the guys doing? Can you answer a question? No. <laughs> I just seen a few paying attention. <laughs> he could be tired. 
Well, I'll tell you what. We'll pray for strength and awakening, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll do our own revival praying here as Isaiah prayed, prayed for revival. Father, You are the great God, the awesome God, the glorious God. And we know that Isaiah knew that whenever he wrote this down that came from Your Holy Spirit. And yet he, he pleaded that You would come and intervene on the behalf uh, of really for Your glory, uh, but that the people would repent and come to faith. We know that You are a God who disciplines, a God who judges. You are righteous, You are just in all ways. And at the same time, we do know that You have mercy. And uh, so as we look at the great characteristics, the awesome power of God, and we just look at You, Lord, tonight, through Your Word, that uh, we would get a keener sense of Your very nature as we look at this grand book. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, Isaiah has a real longing for the love of God. And he knew God. He knew uh, God's Word. He knew what was revealed to him. And uh, he knew that he, he's, he's a holy God. He's a gracious God. And so, Isaiah is getting together a revival prayer. True revival prayer. And it's, it's really a prayer based upon... Theology, applied theology. So to pray as Isaiah prayed, I think would be a correct understanding of um, how we are to to view uh, any kind of situation that we can be in. To pray the way that Isaiah prayed, to to see the character, the the very nature of God in it. So as we look and... um, like I say, it could be a little bit of a review. In Isaiah 63:15, he um, calls for God to look down from heaven. See from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? Where, where are your mighty acts? You know, you're in heaven and we're down here. He recognizes God as holy. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy. Right? And so... Uh, he, he knows that. And he knows the power of God. And he says, where are your mighty deeds? Why aren't you intervening right now? Uh, he says, the stirrings of your heart, your compassion are restrained toward me. And then he says in 16, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So do you see the theological aspect uh, when you have Scripture, when you have theology in your mind, you can pray correctly. Rather than praying for our own selfish needs sometimes, and there is definitely a time to pray for uh, our, our needs and, and the things that you know we want God to do that would bring glory to Him. But if, if we get on the right channel, we start with who He is and we see Father, we see Redeemer, a redeemer from old. He's a God of compassion, uh, power, zeal. Um, he's holy. He's glorious. All those words we've seen. I mean, it's just great praise. And uh, so that's called uh, having a theological background here. He recognizes the gulf between mankind, himself, and, and God. And um, so I think he has the proper humility as he comes before God, and yet he's crying out. And uh, he he wants to he's very conscious of the presence of God as as he prays. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing before we even 
start appealing for uh, whatever problems that we might have, start off with how great He is. It starts backing down and makes the, the situation that we're in or the problems that we're looking at, they start becoming smaller as we start to get a bigger view of God when we start thinking of these, these great attributes. Um, so he says, God, where's your zeal? Where's your compassion? He says that in the very 15th verse there. Um, desperate situation. And he's kind of uh, appealing from the mercies that he had given way back in the past. Um, matter of fact, uh, he goes back to the time of, uh, let's say, Abraham or the rest of Israel. You know, even though they've long been gone here, those people don't know us and where we're at. Uh, yet at the same time, you're the same God of Abraham, right? So that's that's a good way to think of it. You know, being the father of his people, crying out for mercy. Uh, verse 17. I think what you have here, I think, is pretty interesting. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways? That's an interesting verse. Why do you cause us to stray from our ways? Now we know we bring our own sin on, don't we? But does God actually harden a heart? Yep. He sure did. And so was He doing it to Israel? That's His own people. Well, uh, it certainly looks like He can do that. It, you know, it, it's like, okay, they hardened their heart and He can eventually uh, say, okay, you want to do that? And then He lets them go and do their own way. And the the idea of hardened here is in the Hebrew, it actually is a causative, um, the Hebrew verb. And that means He caused that. And, and it's not that he causes anybody to sin. They they did their own sin. But they get entangled with their own illogical thoughts and they start acting upon it and then they start turning away from God even more and more. And uh, so I think we could probably go through uh, several scriptures that talk about hardening the heart of sinners. He can... he can uh, Well, the wrath of God, the first step of it is, is where he says, okay, do what you want to do. Like in Romans, Romans one. Um, look at Isaiah chapter six. This and this is where Isaiah had the vision of God. And then in verse nine, and he said, "Go and tell this people: keep on listening, but not do not perceive; keep on looking, but do not understand." Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. A lot of, a lot of things going on there. Um, it's talking about the, the senses, the ears, the eyes. Um, they're not able to hear. They didn't want to hear, so God then says, okay, I'm not even going to let you hear unless you do start hearing. <laughs> You know, he brings in an anthropomorphism. Um, look at Exodus chapter four twenty one. This is the one we're familiar with. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So he, he says it right off the bat. He says, I will harden his heart. We know that there are other places where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then it says God hardened his heart. The two work hand in hand. Uh, that's a sovereign God uh, and so he acts upon that way. We can look in in a lot of other places. Um, look at Deuteronomy 2.30. This is uh, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness wandering. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. That's a tough, that's a tough statement, isn't it? Even a harder judgment. Yeah, an even harder judgment. I'm, and I thought, wow, I, I, I can... So maybe sure. that's, that's a good way to... Yeah, that certainly fits in there. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? That he, that's right. Worse. You can see His mercy and His wrath at the same time, and His love and His grace. And, um, yeah, that's um, and God does that. A lot of pe- you can see why a lot of people don't like the Old Testament. Right? <laughs> pretty hard statements. Look in Joshua 11.20. Let's look at it as it actually starts. And then you say, He is a good God. And all of this time, the goodness is still there. The very good God. Joshua 11:20, and really, ultimately, for that for that particular individual that we just read, it was for the nation of Israel. You know, yeah. he was going, and of course, it always is there to glorify God. He's going to use that because, and when really, when you look at it, people say, "Well, that's not fair." Here's the thing: nobody deserves any kind of kindness or goodness from God at all. They don't. Nobody deserves it. Nobody. Matter of fact, it should be the other way around. They shouldn't even have life. He immediately could zap them right off, right? So that should help us, you know. Um, 11.20 says, For it was the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that He might utterly destroy them that they might receive no mercy, but that He might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's whenever uh, Joshua went in and um, the northern part of Israel was, uh, was taken at that time. And, and so he brings on <laughs> the enemies. Uh, he turned the, it was the Canaanites. Uh, he, he made them hard hearts so they would fight and that Israel would defeat them. And they just defeated them in, in a huge way. I mean, just of course they were wicked people, 
and they and God wiped out all those um, most of those nations that were there as they came in. God had promised that. Let's look in John chapter 12, verse 40. I'm taking a lot of time on this one part, but I think it's a fascinating attribute of God. Because when we run across those scriptures and somebody could do that and say, well, how does he do that? John 12:40. You've heard of this one. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I healed them. Now, he's taking right out of um, the Old Testament there. It's out of Isaiah 6 that we just read. And it's repeated there in, in John 12. Romans 1, we probably ought to be all familiar with. Romans 1:18, where the wrath of God is uh, brought forth and the people's sins, the homosexuality and all of that that goes along in, in that area. Um, you know, they, uh, they harden their hearts and then God just turns them over to their lusts. That's another way of saying it. He just turns it over. And, yeah. Uh, Romans 9.18, the sovereignty of God chapter. My, this is just all over the place. We're just getting a, a little scan, you know. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now that was the passage dealing with Pharaoh. It comes back, you know, it, you know, he's going to do that, but there's always a, a good reason, a good cause. Uh, boy, we probably better move on here. Got a lot of ground to cover, but I think God has established that He has a moral law, and sin hardens the heart. But ultimately, it's done by divine design. Now, try to unscramble that with your mind. Our finite minds have a hard time grasping it. It's just like, well, why does he choose some and why, why uh, not others? You know, why does he pass over others? Why did he choose us? You know, well, there, there isn't any human reason why he chose. There, there, there's nothing here that, that that was good enough to be saved. But he did. That's amazing to me. So when people say God's not fair, all you have to do is bring that out. Um, but when you, yeah, look at the Book of Job. It's the end of there. Very good. There you go again. It's about the high view of God, isn't it? So wonder. I mean, you know, there was all this hype last week about the lottery. We won the lottery of eternal life. And that's the most important one. We didn't even get to choose the number. And I know, we went. Just think of the odds there that he shows us out of all those billions and billions of people. Yeah, are the odds about the same? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. That's that's really something. It is really amazing. Yeah. I know. It's... Uh, this is this is thinking of high things of God, and when we get Him lifted up that high, then it puts things into perspective. Um, to to believers, God disciplines us, and sometimes He may even seem to turn His face from us. But the thing is, He wants us to repent. He wants us to see our need 
of Him. And it, it, that's all a good thing for a believer. But He punishes His nation of Israel of, of unbelievers. He revealed their sinfulness and their vileness that they had. And so Isaiah is doing this uh, revival praying. Uh, God's doing His thing back then, even though it seemed like you know He was way up in heaven. Isaiah didn't seem like He was even getting through to Him. But He knew who God was. And sometimes it doesn't seem like God's doing anything here. Yeah, you go back, you look at that past. Um, well, let's see. We did the hardened hearts, right? Let's go back to Isaiah then. Spend a little bit more time on there than what I thought I might. But verse 18, I think, is a great key. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. There he brings up the the sanctuary again. And... Your holy people could be Israel, or it could be Babylon itself. They possessed the sanctuary for a little while. It's like um, they had possessions of the land, and uh, of course they desecrated the sanctuary. You know they they had that. You know they they you know blew it away. They they're really our adversaries. They've trodden it down. So there's a couple different ways of looking at it, but. Um, that sanctuary was key to them. That's where the presence of God was to be. And look what Babylon was going to do. He, this is all prophecy, but he's speaking of it as in a past tense. They've trodden it down. Isaiah writes this a hundred years before it happens, and he says they've trodden the sanctuary down. Can you imagine living there and then realizing the great prophet is talking about our temple? That was what stood out about that nation. He says, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. You you put us in the same position that all the other nations are. Isaiah is, is really speaking out of um, where the situation they're in. Um, pretty sad. Desperate. And he does long for the presence of God. So he says, come down here, Lord. Look in chapter 64. What's the very first word? A two-letter word? O. I bet every one of you have sometimes started your prayers out, O Lord. (laughs) Is that true? Oh. And that's a mark of one who uh, really has a heartfelt prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Remember in verse 15, look down from heaven. Now he's saying, come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Please come here. You're way up there. We're down here, and I don't even, you know, I don't even feel your presence right now. Oh, if you could come down here, Lord. If you could do something. Oh, Lord. Well, I think you're hitting me right there because ultimately that's really what's going to happen. And he is going to make his big judgment, isn't he? Uh, 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 and people will know who he is when he comes back. And uh, so, you know, 
At the same time, Isaiah is warning a revival here, and I think the best sign of a coming revival is whenever people get together and say, Oh Lord, when they really see the need. When the church sees the need for God to come in and do a thing. When the whole body of Christ, we don't know when the next big revival is going to be, it might be just when Christ comes back, or it it could happen. You know, something really big could happen in our time. Uh, but I think there's a complacency in the church t- today, uh, like Laodicea. Uh, you know, we're rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. God can change that. I know of two ways to keep uh, from being lukewarm, and that's first to steep yourself in the Bible and and uh, you're going to hear a lot about the worldliness that that can happen. Of course, we've been in James. The book of James has been talking about worldliness. Um, we should be appalled at all the things that are that are going on in our society. I think we are appalled by it. We hear of the worldliness, and sometimes we can just kind of shrug it off and say, "Oh, there's another worldly message that we see here in Scripture or hear it." But um, the, you know, our worldview has to be shaped by by this. And uh, we know some of the things that are going on are just, just terrible, but it's seeped right into the church too. Um, second good way is read church history. Look at some of the great men of God who uh, God has used in huge ways and, and to bring up a, a rising. Uh, and they weren't tainted by any of the modern world views. We can be shaped by some of the things in the world and not even really know it? Have you ever thought about that sometimes? I, you know, we, we don't think it's worldly and all of a sudden we start looking at it the way that it is. Um, oh, Lord, you know, show yourself to us. Uh, he starts talking about a mighty God here. And what you... I think if you look back in the past, you think of the Exodus and uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, the mountains that quake at your presence. There, He knew that God had that kind of power whenever he, uh, Moses, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people there, they were not to even touch the mountain. Uh, and we know in the future when He comes back, people will see the holiness of Christ. Verse 2, As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. This is what Isaiah wants. He wants... God's name to be famous to everybody, to all the nations, that the nations may tremble at your presence. God, come down, you know, show it in some way how powerful you are. It says in verse 3 When you did awesome things which we didn't expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old, so he's going back in the past now, they have not heard or perceived by ear. Catch hold of that. Nor has the eye seen a God beside you. Does that verse sound familiar? Where can you, um, could you place that at? Boom. There it is, right there. That's it. Right. Hey, that's what they're there for. Are you turning there? When you get there, read that. Because that's, that's a great text. Of course, we all love that. But that's about God revealing uh, His truth. To his people. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We like that one, don't we? <laughs> and of course, God has given us 
the, the writers, the apostles, that truth, and then carried it on through the church. Um, verse 5, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. You meet that kind of person that is righteous, who remembers you in your ways. Isaiah's remembering his ways, his power and everything, right? That's a good way to pray. Look at what God has done in your, in your, in your own personal past. All you have to do is go back. Think about where you could have been. If you don't have a lot of bad things to withdraw, draw on, just think about, wow, how blessed you are, but where could you be, you know? That's right. You don't probably have to go too far back. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. God is angry at the sinners every day. We continued in them a long time. This is Isaiah identifying with the nation of Israel, his own people at that time, and even going back past history. We, he's saying, we we continued in them a long time, and and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean. Now you're going to see some here that sounds like the book of Romans. <laughs> Romans 3. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name. Does that sound familiar? Who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. Ah, there's where he just takes his hands off. They call upon Him, but He he doesn't answer. And have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. There we go again. He, He did what? He delivered them into the power of the iniquities. He turned them over to what they already were doing or what they had the propensity to do. Their iniquities was already there. Yeah. That's your Romans 1. You know, He turns it over to their lust. But, we have a verse 8. But now, O Lord, You are our Father. That's pretty good to say in the Old Testament. Because usually they didn't pray that way. They never called God Father. It wasn't until Jesus came on the scene and gave what we know uh, to His disciples. Pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. But now, Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and You our potter. The potter and the clay. I can think of Romans chapter 9 or other other texts that deal with the clay and the potter. That's a good way to view the sovereign God, isn't it? If He's the potter and we're the clay, who are we, old man, to be talking back to the potter? And then He says, And all of us are the work of Your hand. Every one of us. It's Your hand. Then he says, okay, I know you have the right to be angry, and you are angry at the sinners. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. He's pleading for the people, interceding. Nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. He says, look at us, we're still your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. And this is really looking for not only what happened up north, and what had happened a little bit as Assyria came south, but it's also looking ahead to Babylon. Your holy city has become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. It did, didn't it? Zion is where? It's in Jerusalem. He says Jerusalem, a, a desolation. Mount Zion is the, the temple. Our holy and beautiful house. 
Again, he talks about the sanctuary. Have you seen that quite a bit in, in Isaiah? Where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. This is 100 years before Babylon. This is what he's talking about. That is um, that's prophecy. There are liberals who uh, like to say Isaiah didn't re- write Isaiah. It was written by somebody after the fact of the matter. And so they wrote in the past tense. And anybody could do that. And so that, that takes away what? The supernatural prophecy of God, which is a mark of what we believe the Bible to be true. One of the greatest um, backbones of believing that the Bible is inerrant and it's true is the prophecies. The miracles, the prophecies are incredible, aren't they? Um, He lived before this happened as he wrote it. And all our precious things have become a ruin. It did. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? How much longer? How far are you going to let this go? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? No, He's not. He's going to withdraw. And then He will start working His work at the perfect, proper time. Isaiah says, Us. I'm a man of unclean lips. For I live amongst a people of unclean lips, right? He identified with the people. And yet he was probably the most righteous man at that time. Yeah. yeah. What an interesting little tidbit. Okay. Okay, he was angry and then... Yeah, I don't, I don't think... And that really stood out, so yeah. I, I wanted to look at this one and I thought, that totally changes the meaning of it. Yeah. It sounds like that's the way it would uh, read, wouldn't it? Well, he's... he's in course, and then he, he just follows with that, of course, what, what I think of Romans 3 is all are sinners, sinners, all are under the power of sin. And, of course, we know it's by nature, just by nature. Whether they did any acts or not, their nature is, is enough. It, it's bad enough, right? So, um, they got a nature of sin, and uh, he's angry, and then they, they sin, and they sin even more. Um Going to 65. Ready for 65? Here's God speaking now. Okay, so the end of 63, all of 64, you've seen the prayer, right? And this is a, a quite a prayer. And, and of course, he uses God's attributes. He knows his power and who God is and he's just in what he does. But, Lord, will you... Will you stop it before it goes beyond 
everything. But it just goes out of total control. So he appeals to this. Will you restrain yourself? Uh, for all those who wait for him, though, who wait upon the Lord, God does answer, and he acts on their behalf. I think this is a great prayer uh, of Isaiah. He probably felt like, in some senses, in his humanness, that it was not answered. It really was. Because God is going to come back for the nation, and he will get them to bring their nation back into being with a temple. And then they'll go and rebel again. And then he'll leave them for quite some time. And one more time, he will come back, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11. And our Isaiah, as we have already looked at that section when we first started chapter 60, right? 61, 62. Now we're in 65. Here's God. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. Uh, Maybe a little bit tough understanding this. In Romans 10, it's used as Gentiles. And here it could be. But I think in the context of where we've been and where we're heading right after this, I think the nation that he's talking about is who? Israel. Uh, But whenever it's used by Paul in Romans 10, and he will do this quite a bit, he will take a text, put it in, and he'll quote that, but it can have a different meaning. So he uses that in a context of where he's at. It still uses something that they would be familiar with. And it still has the same kind of meaning. But here, I think he's talking about to a nation which did not call on my name. But I don't have to press it. I, I can definitely see this would definitely be Gentiles. He went to nations who didn't call on him. You know, they can't. But it doesn't seem too likely here for that to be because in verse 2, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good following their own thoughts. I think that's pretty good. Their own thoughts. That's the pro- that's our problem when we have our own thoughts. My ways are not your ways. But the more that we learn who God is and His Word, then we start thinking the way that God thinks, saying the things that God thinks, says. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 and 3, it says, renew your mind. Right? So, if we renew our mind, then all of a sudden, what? Our thinking becomes conformed to Him. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, you know, they they were following their own thoughts. Verse 3, a people who continually, look at this, continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. And he's going to mention this again. So evidently, this is one of the biggest things that he has against people who espouse to be believers. They they even worship. They, they came to the temple. Of course, you have to think of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, hypocrites, right? That's really the people that Jesus attacked. It was the ones who looked religious. And so he mentioned they offered sacrifices. They went to the temple. Every Jew did that. They had the sacrifices. 
They did it. Who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places. All the idolatry. Who eat swine's flesh. They just threw it in front of His face. And the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near Me. For I am holier than you. Sounds like the Pharisees, right? But back at that time, they were doing the same thing. These are smoke in my nostrils. Boy, God gets really hard here. You would think, okay, we're at the last part of Isaiah and everything has been glorious and all of a sudden you start seeing the wrath of God come out. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains to other gods, while they also would bring their sacrifices and offerings to the temple, right? They scorned me on the hills. There's their idolatry in the hills and everywhere. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. And now he he turns for a moment. So we see the pleading God to them. We see rebellious people. They they had idolatry. They communed with the dead. Um, they ate the food of idols. Verses six through sixteen is judgment. It's not deliverance. But just before he says that, he talks about the remnant again. Remember in Isaiah six and all the way through Isaiah remnant. Thus says the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So, there you have the grapes, right? Don't destroy that, totally destroy that vine, because there's some good in it yet. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. That means there were believers during this time. It was small. It was a small group, but there were believers, the remnant. There's his promise. He just keeps coming back with that. Don't destroy it. It says in verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. Jacob is who? Israel. And an heir of my mountains from Judah. Uh, Jacob could be Israel. could be the ten tribes that have already been dispersed. But there will be a group of believers from them at that time all the way on through. And heir of my holy mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. So before he gets into the judgment thing again, he comes and, and, and shows there's a, there's a remnant and there are two kinds of people in the land in 11 through 16. Verse 10 says, Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. Now, there's another promise there, too, for the remnant. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to do a destroying here. But I do want to tell you, I do have my people. And I won't destroy the land altogether. As a matter of fact, there will be a blessing at some time out of it. Here we go. But you, who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, who fills cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter. I mean, these are graphic terms. Because I called, 
but you did not answer. So there we have a God who hardens, but what does He do first before He hardens? He calls, and He calls, and He calls. He says, today is the day of salvation. Right? He kept, he kept doing that, and finally he had, to, he had to just lower, cut down everybody out in the wilderness. They just died out there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 talks about I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. I think God is really clear. (laughs) Therefore, thus says the Lord God, and look at the contrast. Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my sight. So, there's going to be a time when God's people will have uh, their rejoicing, their fill, their everything that, that they need. So you have the forsakers of the Lord, you have the servants of the Lord. That's that's the kinds of people there are. All throughout the Bible, there's, there's two lines, aren't there? And right there we see it. Now, that was pretty tough judgment, but yet he keeps showing promise to the believers while he's saying it. And then he gets into verse 17. And he takes this way beyond the restoration of Israel after Babylon. He's going to point to what they've always known about. New heavens, new earth. He can talk about the eternal state here. He's talking about something in the future. I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. It, you're not going to be dwelling on that. You won't be sad because your your loved ones, uh, some of them, or people you knew went to hell. Uh, or think about all the bad times in your life. Those things are done. You know. Forget what lies behind anyway. Don't dwell on that. Move on, right? Move on. Don't stay there. He says when this, when this state comes, you're not. You, there's so much stuff there. You don't. You won't even want to think about the your little baby times on earth. Verse 18 says this. But be glad and rejoice. After he's told them about judgment, what's going to happen? Says, be glad, rejoice forever. And what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. He's already said he's going to destroy it. And he did. But he brought them back up. But it was short. Very short time they had. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Well, that still happens today doesn't it? One day, that'll be gone. Now here's verse 20. 
always found this fascinating. He's talking about long life at, at, during this time. Now, he's talking about sometime in the far future at that time. New heavens, new earth, I think it reaches all the way out to the eternal state. But you also think of this, and this is the golden age that the Hebrew people thought of. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. Okay, we take up there and he says, okay, new heavens and new earth. He's a creating God and you have nothing but rejoicing over that. He created the heavens and the earth, right? Go back to Genesis. When you look at the end of the book, we see a new heavens and a new earth. He has to recreate because of man's sin. All of creation groans. But he will not only revive it. it this is a, a brand new creation where he removes all the, the sin and the consequences of it. We see that there's going to be long life in the kingdom. Well, I thought it was eternal life. E- eternal. Why does he mention here an old man does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. Is he talking about at the time of Genesis, before the flood, when they lived for hundreds of years? Well, he's talking about new heavens and new earth. In that context, it and it sure can't be in our time, because if people live to be 100 years old, they're not considered to be a youth, are they? They're not, they're not considered a child. Uh, an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 we thought a curse. If you don't live to that time, you're not considered blessed. I mean, something in your life has been uh, definitely, there's been a curse there. There's been some sins happening there. So, we're talking about life, but then also death. People are going to die, Right? This is not during this time period. So it's got to be somewhere in the future because it it hasn't been for 2,000 years. Matter of fact, during the time of Christ, people uh, considered to be blessed when they lived as much as 50 years. You know, if you were 40. I think when Jesus was um, walking on the earth here, you know, after his father was, what, a carpenter? But... In the, all the Gospels, we never see a thing about Joseph. And he ha- still had to be a pretty young man, c- considered to our age. But, let's see, Jesus was like 30 when he started his ministry. So Joseph, at best, would have been 50 at that time. And we know whenever Jesus was 12, when he went to Jerusalem, Joseph was there with Mary. But then after that, we we don't see anything else. We don't know when that was, but he might have been in his 40s, somewhere around 50. And that was pretty normal at that time. It was pretty normal, pretty well up until now. We have some drugs to keep us going till we're in our 90s sometimes. Some people get a little over 100. Uh, but that is considered unusual. Living to 100 right now seems more like a curse. A curse than a... That's right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Do you really look forward to living to be a hundred? 
<laughs> Everybody's going, <laughs> We don't talk about that much, but... Uh, so, I think there's some legitimacy in thinking, oh, this is... is what is this talking about? It's, if people are dying at the age of 100, it's sure not the eternal state. We sure can't say that. But our context is something dealing with great rejoicing and it's dealing with some people living, most people living to a long, long age. Not too unlike what it was in Genesis when people lived to be hundreds of years old. And so he reverses that, takes that back. You've got a kind of recreation even at this time during this eternal state. Matter of fact, even Jerusalem changes. It rises up even higher. And then it's put on a, on quite a plane where the temple will be lifted up, it says. So, um, I think it's interesting that um, if somebody does die at the age of 100, that they're, uh, they're accursed. And that's why, this is one of the verses I use so much for uh, at least at least say this is a future time period. Don't spiritualize this and say, well, that hundred doesn't really mean a hundred. It just it's saying people will uh, during the time that we're living in now, people will live longer. You know that you're talking about the kingdom age for now. Yeah, and I'm just I haven't heard anybody really comment on it. I'm just thinking, is that what they're going to say? I I, I don't know. I, I, have, I have asked the question, what does this mean? And I'll be honest with you, I don't ever remember ever getting an answer. Uh, well, it surely can't mean what it says. That's about as good as I get. Okay, so, that, and that's why I say, I think that is a real legitimate one to use for someone who doubts a millennial kingdom. I think, it, I think it's there. I think that's the only time that it could fit. Just like the end of Zechariah, it has there has to be fitting uh, there were there, uh, uh, a cursing upon nations who don't go up and worship God after the return of Christ. That's Zechariah 14, and you have to read that all in context. You know, we've we've done that before, right? You guys familiar with Zechariah 14? You guys familiar? And a temple, it's feast and such, and and it can't be an eternal state because there's no cursing, there's no sin. Here we have death, but yet it's a time of rejoicing. So I think um, those verses really, and then Ezekiel 40-48. But I think Isaiah, enough as we've gone through here. Let's keep going. What else do they do during this kingdom age? They'll build houses, inhabit them. They'll also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. A lot of time Israel would plant but not be able to eat it. They will not build and another inhabit. Right? You build and somebody comes along and takes it. That's what happened all through the history of Israel. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so here we go, long life again, so will be the days of my people. And I think again, he's reiterating, people are going to live for a long time. There's going to be quite the blessings. There's going to be uh, working, laboring, uh, building. Look at this, bearing. Cho- My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hand. Uh, they, they work. They will not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity. And there we go again, bearing children. Glorified saints will not marry. They will not have children. 
But during this time, there are going to be people that inhabit the kingdom who are not glorified yet, who are believers at that time when Christ comes in. He separates the sheep from the goat. The sheep go into the kingdom. And they're not glorified. We're there. We're glorified. They go in and and they live and they have kids and and they die. Uh, They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come a pass before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I'll hear. I mean, (laughs) it's almost like you have the thought of praying and boom, it's answered. You know, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. Don't tell me this is not a kingdom passage here. Everybody is always related to this. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. That doesn't happen naturally. Do you see how God reverses the curse? I have to think this is what happened, what they did, what animals did before sin. The wolf and the lamb graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. <laughs> they will do. He won't be upright walking, if that be the case of what happened. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. No sin. That that's a great picture of it. I think from Isaiah sixty-five seventeen through twenty-five, we get a great picture of what's going to happen in the future, a glorified kingdom. And even perhaps that goes on into the eternal state there. We have one more chapter. You ready? Just tip on some. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. There's the king. This is just a footstool, the earth is. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place I may rest? Now get, now it looks like, you know, he doesn't even really, he doesn't need a temple. And he doesn't. In the eternal state, we see no temple because he is the temple. But then we also see in other passages where there will be a temple. That's interesting. But here he's talking about, you know, they they took um, the the temple that was built with human hands and um, that was what everything was all about. But God says, For my hand made all these things, for all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble... This verse ought to sound kind of familiar with James, right? Who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who God really takes to. The humble, the contrite of spirit, lowly, tremble at his word. And then now what he does, he starts rebuking the hypocrisy here. Um, The wrath of God is going to start coming out here. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man, or sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol, as they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations, their false, fake worship. He was never against people bringing sacrifices and offerings. All the burnt offerings. God was for that. He told them to do it. But their problem was their heart. They did it automatically. And he hates that kind of worship where it's just automatic worship and it's not really for him, it's their only. So he says, I will choose their punishments, will bring on them what they dread, because I called but no one answered. There we go again. I spoke but they did not listen. 
And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. I think we read something like that earlier. He repeats it. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Now, he's mentioned that before. Okay, The ones who tremble. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. They said, yeah, let's see him. Right. A voice of uproar from the city. A voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who give delivery shut the womb, says your God? So here we get into the joyous future. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. So there's Jerusalem extended all the way out to the nations, and you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees, and you will be taken care of. Just like a baby has all been taken care of. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad. He's saying this after all the judgment passages. Here's the great mercy and grace. Love of God. Your bones will flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to His servants. But He will be indignant toward His enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. Here's our second coming. Right here. Here's the second coming. Here's who He is angry with, His enemies. And His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by a sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. This is Revelation chapter 19. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center who eats swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, Huh? <laughs> will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Look at this. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, Javon, that's like up in the northern area, Russia, such, to the distant coastlands, all the way to places like where we're at, that they may neither, uh, that they have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations. So even Jewish people that are in from the nations are going to come out of there as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. 
just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. What time is this? For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. He gives a promise to Isaiah and the people listening to the believers. You're going to continue. I will never utterly destroy you. I'm going to come back, judge the unbelievers, but I'm going to bring you right on in as I promised. And my covenant that was made to you that starts with Jerusalem and Israel, it also extends into all of us who enter into the covenant of God. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. You notice that? The Sabbath, new moons. They played a big role in the Old Testament. We're not under those kind of regulations and, and, and such, but there will be a time when God brings that into fulfillment of what it is. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth, look at this, and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. That's a tough passage. Um, I think it's very vivid, though, about the judgment of God. And uh, uh, Gehenna here, really, uh, the burning trash heap, never-ending burning, I think it's really relating to what hell is. talks about the kingdom, but then he talks about hell, too. Wrath, judgment, grace, mercy, believers, glory. One of the two. No in-between. Plain and clear. The book of Isaiah is incredible as we have just <laughs> just gone through a little bitty jet tour through it. 66 chapters. I, I went long there, but I wanted to bring up the good news. <laughs> Do you see a lot of the... Um, nature of God there in His promising. What could He have said to Israel and to all who disobey God, including us? That's it. I'm done. I've had enough. I can't put up with you anymore. He could have done that. What's that? Yep. That's right. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve and He could have stopped there. Then he brings on the flood. Keeps it going. And here we are today. Uh, With what's going on in our nation, in our world. That's a healthy view, and that was a re- that was a revival sermon. Yeah. We were talking about revival. Now, do you do you guys see where Isaiah had a revival prayer, and God answered it, and He told him right there. Of course, the ultimate answer, you know, they went back. You know, the people got out of Babylon within seventy years, within a generation. But 
people without Christ are going to always go back the way they were. Christians don't go back the way they were. We take a step back, hopefully three steps forward and maybe a step back, (laughs) maybe two steps back, but he's going to make sure that we keep going, but um, we don't want to take him for granted. And just in case we do, we need to think about sinners in the hand of an angry God. That's why rebellious passages about this and what God does with judgment, even though we know that's not going to happen to us because we, are, we don't want to take it for granted, you know, the, the blessings that we have, but we, we should hate our sin and, and see what God hates it so much, see what He does. He does to the nation that He chose. Even to the temple that represented the very presence of God. Look what he did with that. Isaiah's got a lot of stuff in it. And it's it's hard book, but I hope that maybe we've gotten a, a handle on it. That we you know, we can see who God is, see the the world view that, that we have of all the nations. We know we know this nation is gonna be judged. We know he's using people who are anti-God and he's still going to use them to bring this nation to its knees too. He, he could take a, a, a terrible worst president we ever had and bring us down to being destroyed. And if that be the case, that's God's will. Ultimately. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be a nihilist. I, or, uh, right. Right. And it does happen. In the meantime, we need to pray like Isaiah we need to be praying that a man could represent what we believe in that could be the president of this United States. And that there would be a revival in this land. That's the view we're supposed to take and that all men, people that hear us would become saved. That's really what the ultimate is. What happens even if we got the greatest president that could ever be and people still don't convert to Christ? Compared to eternity, it's nothing. So, you know... I don't want to get. Lost. I, I want to be real. You know, live in, in a reality of saying, "Man, this this nation is in a terrible position." And boy, what who could be elected in this could really be the last days of this nation. And I don't want that to happen. Not on our watch. You know what? But at the same time, God's in control. So I take the the other side too. You can't be wrong in praying for the lost and praying for godly leadership because God is the one who instills the government. And so we should desire that that those people leading us would be saved. And So you can have two views because we are citizens of the United States and still yet, and even better, we're citizens of heaven. So that's really an upbeat. Because I see the news and I see what's happening as far as these presidential runs. And boy, I'll tell you what, there's the, the human side of me that's just going, oh boy. But we have all the hope. I we really do. Right in the <laughs> there we go. Right in.